Almost there. Oh. oh God! I can't get it. Hey, parking. Is it on? You got it on yet? Oh man, I'm just trying to tune bloody radio in. What's this tripping? Oh, it doesn't sound right. And oh, no, I think it's bust. I think bloody radio's knackered. Oh, it's gonna be on in a minute. Oh, we want Des Island disc. It's my favourite. It's one with Jarvis Cocker and everything. Oh, mate, come on, I've nearly got my pipe lit here. <laughs> no, just give it a go. Right, well, I'll just give it a bit more of a turn at dial. Uh, mate, looks up plug. Oh shit! It's not even plugged in. What's that tripping noise? Is that? Bloody witch! <laughs> oh, the back! Dolphin! The freaking back out! Dolphin! <laughs> They're laughing now! Got a couple of bloody whales! What's going on? Just oh. Don't you bloody flick vase at me! I'll tell you something! <laughs> I'll be out with Matt, you little fuckers! Oh, God, that's no good, is it? Do you know what that is? Do you know what that's classed as, our kid? That's classed as a fucking sonic attack! <laughs> <laughs> Little buggers. Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely up to here with them. I really am, but bloody hell. I think I've got it on catch-up anyway. We're not going to get tuned in now. I think we're a bit no, too late. we're a bit too late. started now, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're, I like we're, the beginning and all. Yeah, well, well that's it. It's a theme music. It's great. Yeah. That's, that's what we like. We like the music more than anything else. Cosy <laughs> <laughs> atmosphere. But tell you what else is a cosy atmosphere. Ooh. Kraken Cove! Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> That's it, we're the podcast that shines a beacon onto the bazaar. And I'm Matt. And I'm Benny. And here we are, we're going to read some wonderful stories out, going to cast me light Ooh, out. good lad, you've so, been casting. So me and Benny's a little bit unpolitically un correct these days, but we're going to sit here, we're going to smoke our little pipes. Oh, sitting because we're, we're in the uh, because we're in the observatory today, so we're gonna have a bit. We're having a bit of time off, a little bit of a nice sit and a and a, and a, and a, a study of a few nice things. Exactly. You know? Windows are open, so we're not stinking the place out with those pipes. Yeah, that's it. And please smoke responsibly, people. <laughs> <laughs> it's only now and again. Calm that much. Well, I think the idea of like sonic attacks. I think we should stay in that kind of thing. We should, in the auditory. Uh, arena. Yeah. That's what we should look this time. So I'm going to cast my light out. I'm going to see what we can see. But before we cover all that sort of thing, um, we just got a little bit of news from last week. We got a little bit of a bit of a, um, a callback, if you like. You know, we have had a listener, a bit of a request. You see, oh, they wanted to look at this stuff. Yeah. So uh, hi, Glenn. Thanks for getting in touch. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to know about the a bit more about the old Nazi werewolves we were talking <laughs> oh, about. Oh, Glenn Monkey Boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So yes, yeah, so he wanted to know a little bit more about that, and so I thought, oh, better have a, better have a nose. You better find out a little bit more about it. Uh, and he, you know, he threw, threw up some really interesting stuff because uh -huh. we thought there might have been a kind of uh, a, a military force that had been in some way kind of doctored and changed to be kind of um, I don't know to be to be weird monster soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And it's nice, a little bit more interesting than that. Ooh. So we've got ourselves a little uh, piece here, right, from the SmithsonianMagazine.com. By Lorraine Boissonnet. Right, really odd name. That I like it though. It's nice stuff, right? And this is the Nazi werewolves who terrorized Allied soldiers at the end of World War Two. Right? So, American intelligence officer Frank Manuel 
started seeing a symbol near the end of World War II, etched across white walls in the Franconia region of Germany. A straight vertical line intersected by a horizontal line with a hook on the end. Most members of the counterintelligence corps were of the opinion that it was merely a hastily drawn swastika, Manuel wrote in his memoir. But Manuel knew otherwise. To him, the mark referred to the werewolves. The German guerrilla fighters prepared to strike down the isolated soldier in his jeep, the MP on patrol, the fool who goes a-courting after dark, and the Yankee braggart who takes to the back road. In the final months of World War II, as the Allied troops pushed deeper into Nazi Germany and the Soviet Red Army pinned the German military on the Eastern Front, Hitler and his most senior officials looked to any last resort to keep their ideology alive. Out of desperation, they turned to the supernatural for inspiration, creating two separate lupine movements. One, an official group of paramilitary soldiers. The other, an ad hoc ensemble of partisan fighters. Though neither achieved any monumental gains, both proved the effectiveness of propaganda in sowing terror and demoralising occupying troops. Oh, he's pretty fucking desperate there, though, isn't he? You know, yeah. Let's get to werewolves. You know? yeah. <laughs> Did he try out else? Well, this is the thing. I mean, it, the weird thing about this is if you, if you sort of think about in the France, right, the part, yeah. French partisan sort of soldiers, they uh, they were sort of blowing up railways and yeah, doing all sorts yeah. of causing all sorts of trouble. But in this case, they were going to have the shoe was on the other foot. So when the Brits and the Americans and the Russians were all going to be in Germany, yeah. there's going to be the equivalent of the German soldiers and yeah. these other these other little parties and group that they're going to have as well, the ad hoc group. They're actually in a way going to be almost as effective as trained troops yeah. because they know the land, they know where they're going, yeah. they know what they're doing. You know, and they're fighting for their own land, and that's a, it's a fierce thing to have in your belly. Isn't Absolutely, that? you know. But and I, and I think this is what and to call them werewolves yeah. to say these guys are sort of like you can they look normal in the day. Yeah. But in the night, they yeah. turn into vicious killers, kind of thing. Yeah, and plus they'll be doing stuff at night anyway, when it's great covering it. Yeah, this is it. So, from the start of the war, Hitler pulled from Germanic folklore and occult legends to supplement Nazi pageantry. Higher level Nazis researched everything from the Holy Grail to witchcraft, as the historian Eric Kurlander describes in his book Hitler's Monsters A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. And among these mythological fascinations were werewolves. Kurlander says, According to some 19th and early 20th century German folklorists, werewolves represented flawed but well-meaning characters who may be bestial but are tied to the woods, the blood and the soil. They represented German strength and purity against interlopers. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm, interlopers. So it? people coming in from outside. Ah, so like, yeah, again on their yeah. land. Jeez. Yeah, this is it. So I think what they're almost like saying is the werewolf is, yeah, although it is a strange creature, it is as much part of Germany as yeah. Germany, the soil or anything. Oh, yeah. cool. So, and but I mean, our immediate go to when we're talking about werewolves, obviously, is a, is a, is a feral beast out of control, yeah, isn't yeah, it? That's but they're I not see. looking at it like that. They're looking at it as something a bit different. Yeah. And I have looked into other werewolf, uh, very old werewolf stories, by the way. Yeah, and yeah. this is something I've come up against time and time again. The old traditional one, ones were actually just like a wolf-headed man wow. who didn't really mean any harm, yeah. and in some ways would 
would help people out. Even like, <laughs> well, like dry hump your leg. You know? <laughs> Imagine that. Well, uh, I'm just going to wait till you're done. Well, as long as you, once he's rolled over and turned his belly for a tickle, it's fine. <laughs> Good well. <laughs> but the werewolf was an image Hitler harnessed repeatedly. From the name of one of his Eastern Front headquarters, the Wolf's Lair, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. to the implementation of Operation Werewolf, an October 1944 plan for Nazi SS Lieutenant Adolf Prutzmann and Otto Skorzny to infiltrate Allied troops and sabotage supply lines with a paramilitary group. Skorzny had already proved the value of such specialised strikes in 1943 when he successfully led a small group of commandos to rescue Benito Mussolini from a prison in Italy. Wow, so I mean, these are these are all activities That's I didn't know cool. were going on. Yeah. You know, these are these are all new to me. So I think what we're really looking at, they um, they wanted to train these troops up. They weren't just going to be like just guys with like a, 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 a like a I don't know. A, Wolf's head on. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just like a like a pick and a shovel, or yeah, yeah they weren't gonna be yeah. like a single shot musket. Yeah. These guys were gonna be able to kill with bare hands and everything, right? So the original strategy in 1944 to 1945 was not to win the war by guerrilla operations, but merely to stem the tide, delaying the enemy long enough to allow for a political settlement favourable to Germany. Right. Right. Yeah. But that plan failed. In part because of confusion over where the group's orders came from within the chaotic Nazi bureaucracy, and also because the military's supplies were dwindling. The second attempt at recruiting werewolves came from Minister of Propaganda Joseph Goebbels, and this time it was more successful. Beginning early in 1945, national radio broadcasts urged German civilians to join the werewolf movement fighting the Allies and any German collaborators who welcomed the enemy into their homes. One female broadcaster proclaimed, I am so savage! I am filled with rage! Lily the Werewolf is my name! I bite, I eat, I am not tame. My werewolf teeth bite the enemy. Well, hello. <laughs> I don't know why that gives me a little bit of fizz. Did that give you a twitch? <laughs> I don't know why, but that's like, it's a weird game. We like the idea of Lily the Werewolf, do we? No. <laughs> I won't be putting that accent on again. Yeah. <laughs> Get y'all a bit giddy. <laughs> While most German civilians were too exhausted by years of war to bother joining the fanatical crusade, holdouts remained across the country. Snipers occasionally fired on Allied soldiers. Assassins killed multiple German mayors working with the Allied occupiers. And citizens kept caches of weapons in forests and near villages. Although General Patton claimed, This threat of werewolves and murder is bunk. The American media and the military took the threat of partisan fighters very seriously. One US intelligent report from May 1945 asserted, the werewolf organization is not a myth. Some American authorities saw the band of guerrilla fighters as one of the greatest threats to security in both the American and allied zones of occupation. Newspapers ran headlines like, fury of Nazi werewolves to be unleashed on invaders, and wrote about the army of civilians who would frighten away the conquerors of the Third Reich before they had time to taste the sweets of victory. Mm. (laughs) An orientation film 
screened for GIs in 1945, warned against fraternising with enemy civilians, while the printed Pocket Guide for Germany emphasised the need for caution when dealing with teenagers. Soldiers on the grounds reacted strongly to even a hint of subterfuge. In 1945, two German teenagers, Heinz Petri and Joseph Schroner, were executed by an American firing squad for espionage against the US military. So they were doing it, but I think this is something that's a little bit lost to history. Yeah, the yeah. fact that, you know, that it was a successful um, uh, effort, really. Yeah. It's, it's perfect kind of propaganda, oh, not just propaganda, but you thinking it sounds cool to join, it's on your land, you know what I mean? You're in a cool gang of werewolves. And yeah. they've got GIs and English and allies and that. You're thinking, you know what? They're fucking werewolves. <laughs> well, like, what well, that's it. It's super cool, especially if you're a teenager, <clears throat> they haven't had your chance to get to war. Yeah, yeah. You haven't had your chance to get to battle, and you're thinking, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be one of these bloody werewolves, exactly. mate. You know? I mean, propaganda will be saying, right, Yankees come, they'll just rape your village and kill yeah, you. Yeah, this if is you true. don't do something, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, that's you've got to fight or, you know, yeah. or be kill or be killed kind yeah. of thing. You know, that's right, that's right. So, while the werewolf propaganda achieved Goebbels' goal of intimidating Allied forces, it did little to help German citizens. It stoked fears, lied about the situation, and lured many to fight for a lost cause. The werewolf campaign endangered those German citizens who welcomed the Western occupiers and were active in the local anti-fascist groups at the end of the war. Local acts of terror continued through 1947, and Biddiscombe estimates that several thousand casualties likely resulted from werewolf activity, either directly or from reprisal ki killings, yeah. you know. Tit for tat. Yeah. But as Germany slowly returned to stability, fewer and fewer partisan attacks took place, and within a few years, the Nazi werewolves were no more than a strange memory left from the much larger nightmare of the war. It's true, you've got to get sick of that. You can't go down to 24 hour garage on a full moon. You get your lucky machine gun and shit. It's like everyone's going to have enough of it eventually. Let's just pack it in. Well, I think as well that there's that fear, again, as you, as you think, oh God, no, we're going to be taken over. It's the occupying forces. They're all going to be all shit to us and awful. And then they're coming in and going, like, you know, you're getting bars of Hershey chocolate and stuff. Mm, exactly. and kind of stuff. As yeah. long as you're on the American side of it. Yeah, because they're on Russian side. <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> what you thought. <laughs> Getting sort of shot, stabbed, and raped and stuff. <laughs> it was frightening, wasn't it? Oh, oh man, I don't. Is it the rape of Berlin or something? Yeah, called it? Nasty, like, what? The what? Yeah. He did what? You're supposed to be like the good guy. I've got the book of that. I think it's Anthony Beaver wrote it. That uh, <laughs> of, uh, actually, just <laughs> <laughs> it. It's a silly war. <laughs> right, that's better. <laughs> But, uh, but that's going to be absolutely harrowing. I bet I can read it, mate. Yeah. That's just too much for me. Yeah. No. no, it's a bit heavy going, but you know. But no, as soon as they realised they got it a little bit cushy, you know, the Germans, you know, they turned over a new leaf, didn't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I think it's it's turned out for the best. But you know, we, I think it's good to remember the uh, the werewolves because if the <sighs> that one the werewolf, what was that? Yeah, so I think it's best that we do uh, remember the werewolves. I mean, and learn lessons from I've history. I've never heard of it. It's fascinating. Oh, you know, little rumours here, there, and there, but only a few years. But you think, oh, yeah, yeah it's better to remember it. I mean, in a weird way, I mean, that is, it takes a massive, especially after all the war years, it takes a massive act of, for want of a better word, bravery to actually yeah. just still have some fight left exactly. in you. And although, you know, the Nazi Germany, it's nothing they would admire. <laughs> you know, one thing is, it's that absolute tenacity to sort of like, 
as Hitler wanted to sort of fight the last man and the last bullet. When he chipped a bloody Brazil. <laughs> oh, I know. He's definitely. That's another story for later, isn't it? <laughs> Brazil. Do, 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 do. <laughs> the Nazis our way and that era were a bit bit terrifying wasn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but do you know on that same time some people are having a lot more fun alright yeah, you know, world it. war where <laughs> so let's, here's, we're going to ask the question right Matt Simon for, for Wired magazine has asked a brilliant oh. question right um, why is the sky blue it's packed with sexy energy of course <laughs> <laughs> beautiful which I love that right? sexy energy yeah so as he writes here, I know of a simple box that can radically improve your health. A device so powerful that the FDA once banned it and condemned its inventor to prison. But luckily, and quite graciously, its design has been left unpatented, free for all who might care to harness the mysterious orgone energy that pervades our universe. And you can even get the 175 page instruction manual. You can just download oh, it. Oh man, phone. I want one. Yeah, we'll 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 <laughs> let's make the lighthouse just do a full all accumulator. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a follow-on from something we mentioned again last week. Um, we mentioned like that all gone energy. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really know enough. I don't. Know, it just yeah. sounds ace, doesn't it? it? Sounds so superhero. Yeah, it sounds ace. So let's have a little deep dive yeah. in it. Wait, you know. First things first. Your all gone accumulator, as it's known, must be big enough to comfortably seat a human being. And if you are able to bury it in the soil, all the better, for the dirt only enhances the effects of the orgone. Its walls must consist of alternating layers of metallic and non-metallic substances, for example steel, wool and cotton. And the inner surface of the device must be bare metal of some sort. So would you like a little look at an orgone accumulator? Right, let's have a little look here. That's the inside. So there you go, that's the inside of an orgone accumulator. <laughs> that's a really shit chair though, isn't it? They could have made the chair sexy. Yeah, you want to have a sexy look of it. Yeah, you do. But it does, the box looks good though. You can tell the metal, can't you? Nice little bit of oak around it. Well, I think, I think it's zinc inside there. I think it's, mm. as you say, quite rightly say, I think it's an oak case or an oak cabinet. I'll, I'll show you a little picture of it when it's close so you can really admire the old uh, carpentry. You know, let's have a little look here. Oh, that's lovely. Yes, yeah, so a little bit of stain work. But if you think about that, you see, you could have an orgone accumulator in your front room and it won't look out of place, yeah. would it? Yeah, it <laughs> just suit your furniture. Yeah, it just like a nice little cabinet you've got, so got going on there. what the hell does it do then? What's going on here? Well, let's have a little look into it. Let's see what happens. I swear, though, if it's a vibrating. Oh, the chair didn't look like it was going to vibrate. So, no, no, yeah. no. So, when you've done, you've built your box and everything like that, right? You get yourself into your orgone accumulator, you shut the door behind you, and you take a seat. After a few minutes, your skin will begin to tingle and you'll feel a sort of warming. Your heart rate will stabilise at a Goldilocks pace, neither too high nor too low. So it hits the perfect sweet spot. Yeah, exactly. You will feel, in a word, enlivened. 
but take care not to stay too long. The minute you begin to feel nauseated, make your exit, for your body has been charged to the capacity with orgone. So what's making the power? It ain't the like the the metal and the wool and the you know those layers of it. Is there something you put in there? What is it? What, well, what you it plug is, it in or what? In the strange and colourful history of pseudoscience, Wilhelm Reich's discovery, <laughs> quote unquote, <laughs> of orgone, a substance that's not only a life force but indeed makes up the very fabric of space, right, must surely be a watershed. This is a story of a man who went from psychoanalysis wunderkind to enemy of Hitler to enemy of the US government, only to die a lonely death in prison. Yet somehow, almost a century later, his bonkers ideas live on. Wow, this is mental, so everybody will like loving him and then suddenly hating him quickly. Who, who imprisoned him? Yeah, yes. well let's find out. So, Wilhelm Reich was born in Austria in 1897 and rode the rising wave of the psychoanalysis discipline in the early 20th century under the wing of his mentor, Sigmund Freud. <gasps> yeah. Wow. He was a devout Marxist and argued that the proletariat was so politically impotent because the workers were sexually repressed. So what he's trying to turn around and say, like, you know, the ordinary working class people, they're a bit kind of, you know, they're a bit under the thumb. They're not really letting the, the sexy side go. <laughs> so if they became a little bit more free and easy sexually, oh, yeah. they'd be a bit more free as a, a, a as a class system, if you know what I mean. Yeah, they would be yeah. kind of, and that's the thing that yeah, be get you know, you're in tune with yourself, your own sexuality. Therefore, you you up for more better ideas, different way of thinking. That's it. Cool. Yeah. So revolution, Reich claimed, could only happen with an uninhibited release of sexual urges. Yeah. <laughs> so you, it's a good idea when people compare him, compare him sometimes as like um, Sigmund Freud meets Lenin meets Larry Flint. You know? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Moscow rejected his views as rubbish. Now, of course, him being a Marxist, yeah. you know, the, what Moscow thinks of him is quite important to me. Yeah. They thought it was absolute rubbish. But more importantly, the Nazis took exception to Reich's claims that, like the proletariat, German fascists also suffered sexual repression. And he wisely fled to Scandinavia. And it was there that he discovered orgone energy, which he compared to Freud's notion of the human libido, only on a much grander scale. How does he come across this then, you know what I mean? Just out walking. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, it's all theorising, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? But he was jumping to a lot of conclusions. Yeah, yeah. He was coming up with an idea and adding everything together. And it was just a, a variety of things that he saw and noticed. And it almost like, as you say, mm. while he was out walking, <laughs> they came to these conclusions. So, as he says here, his idea is that orgone is everywhere, usually manifesting as the colour blue. So the sky is blue, not because of the molecules in the atmosphere scatter, scattering blue light better than red light, but because it's positively saturated with orgone energy. Same with the oceans. And the colour of illuminating decaying wood is blue, Reich wrote. So are the illuminating tail ends of glowworms, St. Elmo's fire, and the aurora borealis. And those rippling waves of heat you see coming off of a hot road, that's orgone energy as well, moving west to east, faster than the Earth rotates. Ooh. So he's seen like waves, he's seen <clears throat> colours, he's seen everything in nature, and it, to him, 
it's not just that's what the colour of things are or it's a matter to do with light shift. No, it's all going energy solid. Is that why they call them blue movie? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It's, it's a bit of blue for the dads. <laughs> so when it comes to organic matter, according to Reich, the building blocks of life are not cells, but bions that he claimed to have observed. So he says a biome it consists of a membrane surrounding a liquid and pulsates continually with orgone energy. This pulsation is the dance of life, the basic convulsive rhythm of the love, which finds its highest expression in the pulsation of the orgasm formula. <laughs> right? So you and me are essentially made up of lots and lots of tiny sexiness. <laughs> <laughs> and these bions reproduce asexually by division, just like bacteria. So this is what he's basically saying is every part of us, every cell in our being, wants to multiply. Yeah, yeah. And so the urges within ourselves or sexy feelings. Yeah, yeah. That's just a, a, an accumulation of what all these cells in our bodies. Yeah. That's what they want to do. We want to multiply. Want to We want to multiply. Wow. So it's that's a basic it. urge. The yeah. Animal, yeah. So it is all these little cells. These little biomes or biomes. Uh, they're just tiny little sexy things. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. Yeah. So Reich relocated to the US in 1939 and set up shop on Long Island. So all this is actually going to be going on during World War Two and stuff right, like this, yeah, all yeah. this mal malarkey, you know. Yeah. So he's, while everyone else is sort of like fighting wars with Germany, he's putting himself in a box and playing whack it off. Getting that to his sexy side. Yeah. So, uh, and he set up shop in Long Island. Uh, a year later, he invented the aforementioned Orgone Energy Accumulator which concentrates the energy that's going to waste all around us. It was, as one of Reich's colleagues put it, the most important single discovery in the history of medicine, bar none. <laughs> Wait, you're all about sexy yeah. stuff, not like yeah. the... A lofty statement that's perhaps immediately invalidated by the addition of bar none. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he did, he built this box. So the therapeutic effect of the orgone energy accumulator were nothing short of miraculous. In one pamphlet it said, in severe cases of burns... <laughs> I know you're going to be stupid, isn't it? In severe cases of burns, experiences revealed the amazing fact that no blisters appear and the initial redness slowly disappears. The wounds heal in a matter of hours and severe burns inside the organ accumulator will only be cured within like a, year, a day or two. Wow. So that's what he's reckoning. And this is the amount of sort of like um, power and energy it's accumulating there. <laughs> and it says the box's concentration of organ can even sterilize wounds, treat colds, arthritis, ulcers, and yes, even cure cancer <laughs> if it's caught early enough. <laughs> <laughs> now for me, see, uh, Wilhelm Reich, I think he believes it. Yeah, yeah. I think he's absolutely. I don't think he's just a a, um, a, a bunker man. He's not a full charlatan, you know. Yeah. I think he does believe it. The thing is, you see, because he's now he's 
I think he's pushed it a bit far by all these claims. You know, he's, yeah. he's, he's pushed it. He's in America now. He's not just sort of like in, in sort of like a little little town or a little country. Yeah. In big old the U.S. of A. He's selling it to yeah. the government and stuff. Well, this is it. Well, it's in the nineties. This has been going on for a while. It's now in the nineteen fifties. He's got his all go. He's all going accumulated. He's selling it to people. People are believing yeah. it. And the cost of sort of like perhaps shunning more conventional medicines mm-hmm. in favour of this. It's like yeah. I mean to be honest. Now the all going accumulated probably do really well with like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and, yeah, yeah. and Goop and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> and, and the, but the thing is, it's a danger. So the FDA, the Federal, uh, the, the Food and Drug Administration wow. in uh, in America, they shut its operation down, right? And um, and they went they went pretty far. So they'd warned him against selling his accumulators, right? And the FDA ordered all organ literature and devices destroyed. And they attacked Reich's lab where he was making this stuff with axes. So they went in and smashed it up. It's like, yeah, absolutely. I hit the nail on the head. They went in, smash it up, boys. And just totally did his lab in and everything. It makes me a bit more suspicious that he were right or something, though. I don't know when they're doing it that heavy, aren't they? Well, this is it. But then Reich continued profiting from the accumulators. People were still getting them, wanting them. It was all, you know, it was all sort of like, uh, it it was already. ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, but then. He was sentenced to federal prison. They locked him away. They said, "Look, you've been telling fibs. You, you, wow. you know, you're full of it." Um, so they sent him to jail, and he died there in 1957. Oh, so he didn't last Reich. long in prison. Like, no, want, I think like, he was thirty years or like seven years or something. Yeah, but there's some uh, some people really kind of were really into it. You know what I mean? So William Burroughs, massive oh, cool. advocate. Yeah. yeah, Jacques Kerouac. Yeah, big into guy into the art. Wow. Oh, yeah, big people are using things like this as well. There were loads and loads of different people in the. Um, Sort of the fringes of things. Yeah, so it's like yeah. a band Devo, um, later, much later on, they kind of, they sort of think, yeah, there's something in this. Is it? Oh, so the reviews yeah. are pretty good then, you know what I mean? If you bought it today, your Amazon reviews would be like, yeah, they all go oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> just sure, making sexy. Well, well, the thing is now, there's a lot of all going energy accumulators people get, and a big popular one is a crystal pyramid. Alright. Yeah, because one of the, uh, rather than actually having the cabinet, People still believe in organ energy and mm. think like Chris, a lot of crystal healing and all that kind of stuff. That's based yeah. on organ energy, right. you know. But as you know, I'm personally not a great believer in it, and I don't know whether there's anybody at the moment who's in the modern world who is pushing the idea of this sort of thing, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, but I tell you what, though, it leads on to I've done a bit of fucking homework. Have for you been once. doing a bit of casting? <laughs> bit of casting. He's have a bit shit though. Kids? I'm gonna warn you now because you do main cast, don't you? With full beam. So I've been out of bedroom window with me torch and, <laughs> that, and I thought, what does that kid do? Oh yeah, it's Wikipedia, doesn't it? <laughs> so just just to clarify what we're on about last week, and it does go on nicely into this one. Noel Edmonds, uh, and I'm not about killing all them people live on telly or whatever he did. Because he did a couple, didn't he? he did, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, done a few murders, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he's a bit of a scallop. Let's call them what they are. <laughs> Doing it once is a mistake, yeah. doing it twice. I mean, we, we don't like to put our head in the noose in these things or sort of self, set ourselves up for sort of like any kind of libel. Yeah. But, I mean, I think we're safe to say that Noel Edmonds is a murderer, yeah. a multiple murderer. <laughs> Sol's Noel, but the truth has got to get out, dude. Even though you've got your hair and that flashy beard. But anyway, Noel's into, he's, he's into cosmic ordering. Oh, so he reckons right. that because he's, a, you remember the house party that he did with Mr. Blobby? Yeah. It, it was that shit, he couldn't get another job until he got into cosmic ordering yeah. and then, uh, then he got the no, uh, deal or no deal gig you know what I mean so he said because he's using these, you know, these so is he blaming it on cosmic ordering yeah, yeah yeah he said he couldn't get a job literally I was party with that shite he was just like look everyone going down they're like oh go we're done with you no and then he was like oh let's get into me, me inner self and his cosmic ordering 
and that's it. He got deal and no deal, and they were laughing. Um, and they were at it again in 2008, uh, and he reckons uh, he's a comp accompanied, and this is down to his cosmic artery, by two melon-sized balls of energy <laughs> that, he has, <laughs> that he has to carry over his shoulders. <laughs> And honestly, check Wikipedia. I'm not, you know what I mean? He's a proper dirty fucker. But <laughs> this is all in print to read it. So, uh, and, it, and he's well into the EMP pad, which is an electromagnetic pulse device yeah. uh, that sorts out depression, stress, and cancer. Which, I know, but that contradicts his, uh, you know, these two melon sized balls that he's carrying over. I think you need to go get him checked out and all those balls are, right? Uh, but doctors say that the EMP pad and other devices that produce low-frequency electromagnetic pulses don't do fuck all. <laughs> well, I mean, but there, I mean, that's the, that is the, uh, the the next step on from the organa community. Exactly. Like yeah. That's someone exactly. else is just having a crack at it. Aren't they? He's knows well into it. And Sam, he's going to keep rolling. He's got his deal or no deal gig out of it, so he fully believes Why is it. Come up with his balls over his shoulder. I know. Is he, just, is he basically saying you're saying I've got massive knackers? No, he's saying these, <laughs> these balls, I kind of made it sound like knackers, but he actually says that he's mum and dad, you know what I mean? These balls are energy. <laughs> <laughs> he's his balls are his mum and dad. <laughs> if we do get sued, can he crowdfund us, please? Because this is too funny about fucking say Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll be sitting on a, a Patreon for this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just to clarify as well, remember I on about the uh, the little European dude that uh, moved all them boulders and stuff. Oh yeah. And yeah. um, well he and he put them on back at trucks and all that. It was it was Mr. Leeds Callanin uh, and his place was called the Coral Castle. Uh, and he moved it to say it with reverse magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> well there we go. Yeah there we are Benny Homework. <laughs> Did it <laughs> Well I thought it was fantastic. Thank you like it. <laughs> Now we've covered um, now we've covered Blobby and Big Balls in the, in the sort of guise of Noel Edmonds, right? I, I, I need to ask you a question, right? What is is it again? This is something we talked about last week. What is brown noise? Oh, because I've heard it that there's a you can go to a rock concert and everybody got some Grateful Dead shit or something, and everybody's like rocking out and they're, and they're all tripped up and they're going for a new sound live and they just suddenly hit a, a note and that's it. It's just like it actually makes you the vibrations make you shit your pants, <laughs> so you could have a whole dead audience just like shiting. Well, weirdly enough, that isn't. Oh, brown noise is something completely different. Now I didn't realise, but I've actually been using brown noise here and there. Right. <laughs> your coffee and your cigarette yeah, <laughs> makes the right brown noise afterwards <laughs> so, but what it is like, have you heard of white noise yeah yeah it's just like yeah. a interference kind of not you know it's not there and it is there so. yeah well this is um this is rachel lapidos for a well and good website mm. called, right and she says half of our editorial staff fall asleep using the same white noise app but for brown noise right so she's been sort of like falling asleep for years to sort of like the sound of white noise because it tunes out a boyfriend snoring 
and she doesn't like complete silence. Yeah. So I'd imagine she's probably like a city city girl listening yeah. to that because you know a lot of people time when you've been used to being sort of in a city, you used to like a little bit of a buzz and a hunger. Yeah, like that horses you know, have heard that yeah. with people really? horses, you know what I mean? They, they have to have some more because they can never get yeah. Well, a lot of people put on like a fan, don't they? Yeah, put on like yeah. a little fan on the go, yeah. put something on just to create some noise and can fall asleep because the silence does right in. Right? And these things that I like as well because, of course, now with apps and stuff, you get white noise, mm, you can get yeah, like little sea noises. Yeah, I like the sea noises, rain noises. Yeah, all that sort of rain noises, massive one for yeah. me, is that, you know? But, um, one she uses a dishwasher rinsing cycle. I'm recording that. Yeah. That, whoa, whoa. You know that sort of thing. Or a cat poo. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, she's discovered what she's recently discovered. Right. Is brown noise. So her uh, sort of muzzleapilus says here. Before I came to rely on the app, I had never heard of brown noise, or pink noise, or violet noise, or blue noise for that matter. And I always figured white noise was the standard in the world of colour-coded static tones that can help a gal clock some sleep. But then I learned that not only do several of my colleagues also credit brown noise for helping them to fall asleep, but they also use the exact same app. So what's the appeal? Well, at first listen, white, brown and pink noises may seem pretty similar, but each colour has its own frequency which gives off a different pitch. So Sam Nicolino, a musician, sound engineer, and founder, president, and CEO of Adaptive Sound Technologies, says, brown noise has less high-frequency sound energy than pink and white noise, and it resembles the sound of gentle ocean surf. You know that sort of yeah, like, yeah, you know? Yeah, I like it. So put it another way, it has more bass than white noise, making it more pleasant to listen to, right? So really, that's the sound that we're on. That is what brown noise is. It's well, how come they uh, put them with colours in that? You know what I mean? Do you know? I don't know. Just they had to categorise them somehow so they can go. I for think that. so. Yeah, I think it must be like that. Well. You know. You know, and they're saying, so we sh- I mean, she thinks now, listening back, she thinks that white noise is a bit more shrill and panic inducing, which I yeah, think is a bit staticky. Yeah, that yeah. you know, and pink noise is too screechy. But brown noise apparently is well. the sweet spot. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's you know, and it's. I don't know why they choose the different colours, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a strange one. But that's that's the thing. But if we're going to study brown noise, we need to study the brown note. And that is what you were talking about. Right. The brown note. <laughs> so the brown note, this is from Wikipedia, <laughs> is a hypothetical infrasonic frequency that would cause humans to lose control of their bowels due to resonance. <laughs> and attempts to demonstrate the existence of a brown note. <laughs> Using waves transmitted through the air have failed. So the name is a metonym for the common colour of human (laughs) faeces. Frequencies uh, supposedly involved are between 5 and 9 hertz, which is below the lower frequency limit of human hearing. So if you've been hit by brown, brown (laughs) the brown note, you wouldn't even know about it, you'd just bab yourself. Oh man. So it says here, right? The air is a very inefficient medium for transferring low frequency vibrations from a transducer to the human body, so something creating a note yeah, to you, yeah. air's pretty bad, because obviously it just disappears, you know. The chemical connection of the vibration source to the human body, however, provides potentially dangerous combination. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the US space program worried about the harmful effects of rocket flights on astronauts. <laughs> Ordered vibration tests that used cockpit seats mounted on vibration tables to transfer brown notes <laughs> and other frequencies directly, directly to the human subjects. Very high power levels of 160 decibels were achieved at frequencies of 2 to 3 hertz. Test frequencies range from 0.5 hertz to 40 hertz, and test subjects suffered motor ataxia. So I don't know what that is. I think you know. Like motor skills. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Nausea, visual disturbance, degraded task performance, and difficulties in communication. So really, the brown note can work, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to shit yourself. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But it's just. Bloody uncomfortable. <laughs> you remember that old movie, The Shout? You remember that one? I like, do. That's such a good movie. Like, learn some like Indian secret of shouting. Be quiet or I'll shout you to death. You remember when he says that? And he had it as a superpower. He was like, Be quiet or I'll make you go toilet in your pants. <laughs> what a what gift. Funny enough. <gasps> don't make me do it, don't <laughs> It's not just that. A little bit later on. Something for that for you. Oh, baby. It's one of my favourite. <laughs> it's not exactly the challenge. Yeah, yeah, but it's you know. anything linked, yeah. <laughs> heard of a guy called Vladimir Gavro. No, but he sounds pretty cool. He does sound pretty cool, doesn't he? I like the sound of him already, right? And Vladimir Gavro, born Vladimir Gavronsky. In the, they don't know when he died. He died between 1968 and 1972 to this character, right? Um, was a French scientist making experiments on the biological effects of infrasound. So these are the same things as like brown noise and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. You know, these are sounds that uh, below or above. Yeah. I believe it. I believe it's above as well. The pictures of human hearing. Yeah, things dogs and cats are going fucking mental, but we're just shitting his pants. Yeah, this is it exactly. You know, but this is it. So he's like, um, so Gavril was born in Russia. His interest in infrasonic waves first came about in his lab during the 1960s when he and his lab assistants experienced pain in the eardrums and shaking lab equipment, but no audible sound was picked up on his microphones, right? He concluded that it was infrasound and got to work preparing tests. So this is a piece about uh, Vladimir Gavro here, and he was actually included in a, in a book about him by Jerry Vasilatos, right? Uh, and it's a book called Deadly Sounds. By Dr. Vladimir Gavro, right? Oh, Vlad the Gav. Yeah, this is it. So it's pretty, you know, this is pretty scary stuff in a weird way. The central research theme of Dr. Vladimir Gavro was the development of remote controlled automatons and robotic devices. To this end, he assembled a group of scientists in 1957. The group successfully developed a great variety of robotic devices for industrial and military purposes and in the course of developing mobile robots for the use in battlefields and industrial fields, Dr. Gavro and his staff made a strange and astounding observation which not only interrupted their work, but became their major research theme. Housed in a large concrete building, the entire group periodically experienced a disconcerting nausea which flooded the research facility. Day after day, for weeks at a time, the symptoms plagued the researchers. 
called to inspect the situation, industrial examiners also fell sick with the malady. It was thought that the condition was caused by pathogens, a building sickness, right? No such agencies were ever biologically detected, yet the condition prevailed. Research schedules now seriously interrupted, a complete examination of the building was called. The researchers noticed that the mysterious nauseation ceased when certain laboratory windows were blocked. It was then assumed that chemical gas emissions of some kind were responsible for the malady, and so a thorough search of the building was undertaken. While no noxious fumes could be detected by any technical means, the source was finally traced by building engineers to an improperly installed motor-driven ventilator. Wow. So just a ventilator, right? <laughs> so the engineers at first thought that this motor might be emitting noxious fumes, possibly evaporated oils and lubricants. So it's yeah, like burning yeah, yeah. when you're well, pumping just, fumes into yeah. there, yeah? So gas is kind of meeting and it's... Yeah, exactly, it's something like yeah. that, yeah. Nothing was found, right? And it was found that the loosely poised low-speed motor poised on its cavernous duct of several stories, was developing nauseating vibrations. So this ventilator was pumping air into the building, yeah. but it was over a pipe, and it was just creating this... Wow, yeah, so just that, that acoustics of that weird shaft, and that weird, you know, the fan's speed. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's it. So then what they started doing then is they started kind of... Um, tinkering with this motor, yeah. sort of thing, this ventilator, and they started opening doors and windows and things like this <laughs> to try and create, see what could do, recreate it, yeah, yeah. stop it, and this is this almost like the building became the experiment. Wow, that's like haunted house shit, I love that. Exactly, that's what it, exactly yeah. what it's like, it's like this is what they say a lot of things to haunted houses yeah. are, it's the oscillations away, wind flow, things like this wow. could be <laughs> some of those things, right? So they the, uh, tampered with like uh, sound intensity and pitch. They uh, adjusted the tightness of the springs that it was on as well to sort of like see what they could do with yeah. it. And it, the, again, the whole building just turned into a, an instrument. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they could not pursue the search for long time periods. During the very course of tracking the sound down, an accidental direct exposure rendered them all extremely ill for hours. It's completely fucked them up. It's immensely powerful. When finally measured, it was found that a low-intensity pitch of fundamental seven cycles per second was being produced. It became obvious that the slow vibrating motor was activating an infrasonic resonant mode in the large concrete duct, operating as the vibrating tongue of an immense organ pipe. <laughs> That's a bit weird, that. <laughs> a bit of stuff of nightmare to that. Now, a lot of researchers before this had been aware that, like, a loud bang, you know, things like this yeah. can sort of spook people and screw people up. They've never really thought about sort of quiet sounds or infrasonic sounds, nothing like that. They'd never been really sort of been aware of it. Yeah, they didn't, yeah. weren't aware that there were sounds that far below yeah. the, the, the range of our hearing abilities, you know, or that those sounds could have anywhere like affect us. So in the business of military research, Dr. Gavreau believed he had discovered a new and previously unknown weapon in these infrasounds. Aware of the natural explosives by which infrasonics are generated, Dr. Gavreau began to speculate on the application of infrasonics as a defense initiative. 
The haphazard explosive effect of natural infrasound in thunderclaps were quite effective in demonstrating what an artificial thunder maker can do. So you kind of feel it in your chest and yeah. your gut and everything like that, but it's like a one-off wham, isn't it, you know? But now what he's looking at to do is focus these things, capture it, intensify it and fire it at people as what he calls an infrasonic laser. Oh my god, I'm glad he's doing some good with this shit, you know what I mean? He could be like frying vegetables, but no, he's supposed to fucking blow people up. That's it, yeah. The first devices uh, Dr. Gavro implemented were designed to imitate the accident, so like in, in the building, so you yeah, have to recreate yeah. that building, you know. They designed real organ pipes of exceedingly great width and length. The first of these was 6 feet in diameter and 75 feet long. These designs were tested outdoors, securely propped against protective sound absorbent walls. The investigators stood at a great distance. Two forms of these infrasonic organ pipes were built. The first utilised a drive piston, which pulsed the pipe output. The second utilised compressed air in a more conventional manner. The main resonant frequency of these pipes occurred in the range of death. Oh shit, oh my. Found to lie between three and seven cycles per second. So that's what they're calling it's like a, a, an anti sweet spot, you know yeah, what I mean? It's like yeah. some steampunk fucking war, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. These sounds could not be humanly heard. A distinct advantage for a defense yeah. system. So you won't know it's like it's like a creepy death kind of thing, you know? The effects were felt, however. The symptoms came on rapidly and unexpectedly, though the pipes were operating just for a few seconds. Their pressure waves impacted against the entire body in a terrible and inescapable grip. The grip was a pressure which came in on one from all sides simultaneously, an envelope of death. Next came the pain, dull infrasonic pressure against the eyes and ears. Then came a frightening manifestation on the material supports of the device itself. With sustained operation of the pipe, a sudden rumble rocked the area, nearly destroying the entire test building. Every pillar and joint of the massive structure bolted and moved. One of the technicians managed to ignore the pain enough to shut down the power supply. Dr. Gavreau and his associates, even at that immense distance, were dangerously ill for nearly a day after these preliminary tests. The maladies were sustained for hours after the device was turned off. Infrasonic assaults on the body are the more lethal because they, they come with dreadful silence. The eyesight of Dr. Gavreau and his fellow workers were affected for days. More dangerously were their internal organs affected. The heart, lung, stomach, intestinal cavities were filled with continual painful spasms for an equal period. Gee man, that's like hardcore, isn't it? I mean, if you just think of these huge devices that built, 75 foot long pipes. Systems and pipes and all uh, that. And also the, these oscillations that they're creating, right, were just mind-bendingly powerful that even now, now we, we still talk about like sonic weapons and stuff nowadays. You know, there's a lot of talk in the press and stuff like this about them. But they really don't know. They haven't tapped into the actual power of them. But Vladimir Gavro, Dr. Gavro, did 
And this is the you know like the precursor to what possibly could come later on. You know, right? You know that they had some people sat in that building like, right, you've had it. You know, let's see if it really does kill someone. You know, well, this is can true. we borrow a prisoner or something? Well, would you like to have a look at one of the monsters oh, for Gavro's sound yeah. weapons? It's only a miniature version, but it's this is Doctor Gavro with his uh, with his. Uh, with his sound weapon. Now, it's not a great picture, but as you can see, imagine all these formulations of pipes and things like this, Big right? Cage, like, yeah. you like, know, is it Geiger or Alien? Does it actually like a Hitchhiker Geiger film? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that. It's got. It's definitely a sinister item. And um, we'll, we'll be putting these photos oh, up. Oh, what year is that then? You're all sewing and booted, Oh, this is sort of like the 19, like 1950s, 1955 right. kind of area. Yes, yeah, so we get a bit of a know. sweet spot at years for it then. Well, I think there was, I think there was like a, um, I think there was a trend yeah. working in these sciences, and I think different people swapping different concepts and ideas, you yeah, know. Yeah. And again, I think Spying. it was, yeah, it was, it was it, that time, because obviously there's a lot of things being discovered to do with like atoms and various things like this. I think there was a, another side of science going on all together, you yeah, know. Yeah. Open mind, I, yeah. I love that idea of like a building and the mistakenly got that power from it. You know, it's like, hey, it's fucking haunting, oh, isn't it? Mad, it's, yeah. We're making it alive or something. Oh, well, this is the thing, it's working, it does feel like something that's reaching out and gripping people Jesus. in a ghostly kind of yeah. way, you know. But one of the most terrifying things of Gavro's experiments involved an infrasonic whistle that some say had led to a line of research that has military applications, right? And this was something that was described by William S. Burroughs. He looked into this right himself, right? And he said, In developing a military weapon, scientists intend to revert to a policeman's whistle form, perhaps as big as 18 feet across, mounted on a truck, and blow it with a fan turned by a small airplane engine. This weapon, they say, will give forth an all-destroying 10,000 acoustic watts. It could kill a man five miles away. There is one snag. At present, the machine is as dangerous to its operators as to the enemy. The team is working on a way to focus it. Various systems of baffles have been tried, but the most promising method appears to be propagation of a different and complementary sound to the wavelength backwards from the machine. This changes the frequency of an air wavelength moving in that direction, thus protecting anyone to the rear. So what he's saying is the only way to actually uh, protect anybody operating this device is an equal and opposite waveform yeah, to protect yeah. them, to neutralise it. Jesus. So like a dead sound, like oh, a, you know what I mean? Yeah, like a, like a cushion of sound or something. I think when you're going back, you know, backwards and like the old heavy metal. Oh, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> and I'm like, this is getting satanic, Your, your mother cooks socks in hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you know, I mean, yeah, so you've got William S. Burroughs describing what he's talking about, being like a big police whistle on a van, blown by a, a, the aeroplane engine. Can you imagine what insanity oh that is? God. You know. But you know they did it like, oh shit, everybody's dead, you know, let's try again, you know. Yeah. What I mean? <laughs> well, this is, it's absolutely mental, you know what I mean? It's, wow. it's so dangerous. But the question is, 
have these weapons ever been used? Have they been put into mm. place? Have they been sort of unleashed on an unsuspecting public? Yeah, yeah. I reckon, yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Let's have a find out. Well, I'm afraid you'll have to wait until next week to find out where the strange story of sound takes us. I promise it'll be worth the wait though, as in part two, we'll look at the weaponization of sound, but also some of the weirder sides of sound too, including the XF84H Thunder Screech, the Integratron, Tesla's Oscillator, and we'll make a brief visit to the Dyatlov Pass. Thanks for listening, and from me and Benny, see you next time at Kraken Curve. Bye. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at krakencovepodcast at gmail.com On Twitter at Kraken Cove or Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod. Ha ha!